0: Section 5 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by Lewis Heman, Louisville, Kentucky. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. Section 5: The Reorganization of the Empire by J. S. Reed. Some rough idea must be conveyed of the mode in which the scheme was applied to the practical work of government. It must be premised that now, as heretofore, there was no point in the vast and complex machinery of bureaucracy at which the direct interposition of the Emperor might not be at any moment brought into play. There was therefore no mechanical subordination of officer to officer, such as would produce an unbroken official chain, passing down from the emperor to the lowest official. And even apart from imperial intervention, we must not conceive of the different grades of functionaries as arranged in absolutely systematic subjection, one grade to another. This would have interfered with one principal purpose of the new organization, which aimed at providing the emperor with information about the whole state of his dominions, through officers immediately in touch with him at the center of the government. The emperor could not afford to restrict himself to such reports as might reach him through a prefectus praetorio or a proconsul. Thus, the vicari were never regarded as mere agents or deputies of the praefecti, and the same may be said of other officials. All might be called on to leave the beaten track. The Prefecti Praetorio, though each had his allotted sphere, were still in some sense colleagues, and were required on occasion to take common action. One great aim of the new system was to prevent administrators from accumulating influence by long continuance in the same post or in any other way. Therefore, functionaries were passed on rapidly from one position to another. Therefore also, except in rare instances, no man was allowed to hold office in the province of his birth. All offices were now paid, and the importance of many was discernible from the amount of the stipend received by the holder. As in earlier times, certain offices conferred on their incumbents what may be regarded as patents of nobility the nobiliary status arising from office was not hereditary as in an earlier age. Yet, the halo of the title, to some extent, covered the official's family. New appellations were invented to decorate the higher offices, whose tenants were graded as illustres, spectables, and clarissimi. To the last designation, all senators were entitled. Other expressions as comes. Patricius, were less closely bound up with the office. The use of these titles spread gradually. Before the end of the first century, Vir clarissimus, parentheses, V.C., on inscriptions, parentheses, began to denote the senator. The employment of distinctive titles for high officers of equestrian rank, Vir eminentissimus, Vir perfectissimus, Vir egregius, began with Hadrian, and developed in the time of Marcus Aurelius. The designation Vir Egregius fell out of use during or soon after Constantine's reign. The tendency of the new organization was to detach many offices from their old connection with the equestrian body, whose importance in the senate diminished and then rapidly died away. Many changes in the application of these titles to the different offices took place from time to time. The Praefectus Praetorio, was the most exalted civil officer in the new empire. His duties were executive, legal, financial, of every description In fact excepting the military. His only service for the army lay in the supply of its material requirements in pay, food, and equipment. He became, in the end, one of the highest of the viri illustris. The praefectus, in whose district the emperor resided, was for the time being of enhanced importance, and was donated as Praefectus Praetorio Praesens. The office had, even before the time of Diocletian, attracted to itself a good deal of criminal jurisdiction. The Praefectus was now not a judge of first instance, but heard appeals from the courts below, within his sphere of action, with the exception of the court of the vicarius, from whom the appeal went straight to the emperor. On the other hand, after 331, there was in the ordinary way no appeal against a sentence passed by the praefectus, who was held to sit as the alter-ego of the emperor, (vice sacra parentheses. No other official possessed this privilege. The whole administration of the regents committed to him was passed under review by the praefectus. His supervision of the Provisional Governors was of the most general kind. Each was compelled to send in twice a year a report on the administration of his province, and particularly on his exercise of jurisdiction. In the selection of Governors, the Praefectus had a large share, and he exercised disciplinary power over them. Erring functionaries, both military and civil, could be suspended by him till the Emperor's pleasure was known. He usually advised the Emperor concerning appointments. His control of finance, both on the side of receipts and on that of expenditure, formed a most important part of his duties. All difficulties in the incidence of taxation and in the collection of the taxes came under his consideration, but no officer of the Emperor, however highly placed, could diminish or increase taxation without the emperor's express sanction the praefectus was also responsible for the due transport of corn and other necessaries destined for the supply of rome and constantinople many other functions fell to his lot among them the superintendence of the state post cursus publicus If we may adapt an ecclesiastical phrase which describes the archdeacon as the oculus episcopi, we may say that the vicarius was the oculus praefecti. He gave a closer eye to details than was possible for his superior within his dioceses. At first, he was perfectissimus, afterwards, spectabilis. The tendency of the rulers after Constantine was to increase his importance at the expense of the praefectus, rather, however, in the field of jurisdiction than in other fields. The vicarius had but little disciplinary power over the rector provinciae. The governor could in a difficult case seek advice from the emperor without having recourse to either of his superior officers, though he was bound to inform the vicarius, and the latter could on occasion go straight to the monarch. The court of the vicarius, like that of the praefectus, was an appeal court only. The provincial governor was judge of first instance in all civil and criminal matters, except in the cases of some privileged persons, and in those minor affairs which were left to the magistrates of the municipalities within the province. The small size of the province made it unnecessary that its rulers should travel about to administer justice, as in the earlier times. Causes were heard at the seat of government. Much of the time of the governor was occupied in seeing that imposts were duly collected, and that no irregularities were practiced by subordinates. Responsibility for public order rested primarily with him. The lower grades of civil servants in the provinces were to a very large extent in connection with, and controlled by, the great departments of the imperial service whose chief offices were in the capital. Early in the imperial period, three great bureaus were established, whose presidents were named Ab Epistulus, A Labellus, and Ab Memoria. These phrases survived into the age of Constantine and after, but denoted the offices, and not their chiefs, whose title was Magister. The departments themselves were now described by the word scrinium, which had originally denoted a box or desk for containing papers. The word had, therefore, undergone a change of meaning similar to that which had passed over Fiscus, whereby from a basket for holding coin, it came to mean the imperial exchequer. The demarcation of business allotted to the three great scrinia was not always the same. The Magister Memoriae gradually encroached on the functions of the other two heads of departments, and became much the most influential of the three. A fourth scrinium, called the Scrinium Dispositionum, was added. Its Magister, later called Comes, was at first inferior to the other three, who belonged to the class of the Spectabules, but was afterwards placed on a level with them. All these magistrate on being promoted became vicarii. All four were subject to an exalted personage known as the Magister Officiorum, who was a Vir Illustris. The department known as Ab Epistulis was early divided into two sections distinguished as Ab Epistulis Latinus and Ab Epistulis Gracus. It was originally the great Secretariat of the Empire, here were managed all communications touching foreign affairs and the general correspondence of the government excepting in so far as it related to the legal and other multifarious petitions addressed to the emperor appealing for his interference or his favor these would come not only from officials but also from private persons and all fell within the functions of the office a libellis this bureau absorbed into itself another which had been specially devoted to legal inquiries and was called a cognitionibus. Hence, the Magister libellorum is described in the digest by the fuller title Magister Scurni libellorum et Sacrarum Cognitionum. The department had famous lawyers like Pepinian and Ulpian connected with it and it must often have sought the aid of specialists in other matters belonging to the public service as revenue and finance, for many of the petitions addressed to the rulers sought relief from taxation. The name of the department a memoria implies that its head was the keeper of the emperor's memory. It was therefore a record office, but it was much more. It assisted other offices in putting documents into their final shape and not only recorded the documents, but issued them. The accounts we have of the office make it clear that it took to itself much important business which originally was transacted by other departments. Thus, the Notitia describes the Magister Memoriae as dictating and issuing adnotaciones, that is to say, brief pronouncements running in the Emperor's name also as giving answers to supplications. Parentheses, preaches, parentheses. Further, he gave to the emperor's letters, speeches, and general announcements their final form, and sent them forth. The magister libellorum and the magister epistolarum must have become, in fact, though not in form, his inferiors. From his office emanated diplomas of appointments the permission to use the imperial post, and countless other official permits. The Scrinium Dispositionum kept in order all the emperor's engagements, and made the innumerable arrangements necessary for his journeys, and took count of many matters with which he was in touch, being of such a nature as not to come definitely within the purview of other bureaus. All these Scrinia were under the control of one of the greatest functionaries of the empire, the Magister Officiorum. His importance grew over a long space of time from small beginnings. His functions encroached greatly on those of the Praefecti Praetorio, and their development is a measure of the jealousy entertained by the emperors for these great officers. The word officium indicates a group of public servants placed at the disposal of a state functionary. The Magister Officiorum is the general master of all such groups naturally he is vir illustris he selected from the scrinia in accordance with the elaborate rules of service the clerks who were required to carry out many sorts of business in the capital and in the provinces his duties were of many different kinds through which no connected thread of principle ran they evidently reached their full compass by an agglomeration which followed lines of convenience merely one of the most prominent occupations of the magister lay in his direction of what may be called the secret service of the empire. He had under him the very important scola agentum in rebus, which was organized by Constantine, or possibly by Diocletian, and replaced a body of men called frumentari, drawn originally from the corps which had in charge the provisioning of the army. These had acted as secret agents of the government. They were the men by whose means Hadrian, as his biographer says, quote, warmed out all hidden things, end quote. The vast extension of the secret service in the age of Constantine and later was a consequence of the huge increase in the number of officials and of the suspicion which an autocratic ruler naturally entertains towards his subordinates, in part also of a genuine but ineffectual desire to check misgovernment the term scola is closely connected with the army and implies a service which is regarded as military in trend like that of other scolae palatine the duties assigned to this scola opened of course wide doors through which corruption enters and it became one of the greatest scourges from which the subjects of the empire suffered all attempts to keep it in order failed the number of the officers attached to it was generally enormous Julian practically disbanded it, retaining only a few of its members, but it soon grew again to its former proportions. The officers belonging to the scola were arranged in five classes, with more or less mechanical promotion, such as generally prevailed through the imperial surface. The members themselves seemed to have had some voice in the selection of men for the highest and most responsible duties. The standing of the scola became continually more honorable, and members of it rose to provincial governorships and even to still higher positions. The agents in rebus was ubiquitous, but only some of the more momentous forms of his activity can be mentioned here. An officer called Princips, drawn from the scola, was sent to every vicarius and into every province, where he was the chief of the governor's staff of assistance. Parentheses, officium, parentheses. This officer had gone through a course of espionage in lower situations, and his relation to the Magister Officiorum made his proximity uncomfortable for his nominal superior. Indeed, the Princip's came to play the part of a sort of mar de palais to the Rector Provencie, who tended to become a merely nominal ruler. The Princip's and the Officium were quite capable of conducting the affairs of the province alone hence we hear of youths being corruptly placed in important governorships and of these offices being purchased as in the days of the republic only in a different manner after this provincial service the princeps usually became a governor of a province himself at an earlier stage of his career the agents in rebus would be despatched to a province to superintend the imperial post-service there and see that it was not in any way abused This title was then Prepositus Cursus Publicae, or later, Curiosus. This service would enable him to play the part of a spy wherever he went. The burden of providing for the post was one of the heaviest which the provincials had to bear, and those who contravened the regulations concerning it were often highly placed officials. That the Curiosi, by their espionage could make themselves intolerable there is much evidence to show the agentes in rebus were also the general messengers of the government and were continually despatched on occasions great or small to make announcements in every part of the emperor's dominions while performing this function they were often the collectors of special donations to the imperial exchequer and made illegitimate gains of their own owing to the fear which they inspired a regulation which is recorded forbidding any agents in rebus from entering Rome without special permission is eloquent testimony to the reputation which the scola in general had earned. Among the other miscellaneous duties of the magister officiorum was the supervision of formal intercourse between the empire and foreign communities and princes. Also, the general superintendence of the imperial factories and arsenals which supplied the army with weapons. The corps of guards (scolae scutariorum et gentium), who replaced the destroyed Praetorians, were under his command, so that he resembled the Praefectus Praetorio of the earlier Empire. And connected with this was a responsibility for the safety for the frontiers parentheses, (limites) parentheses, and control over the military commanders there. Further, the servants who attended to the court ceremonial officium admissionis, parentheses, were under his direction, as were some others who belonged to the emperor's state. His civil and criminal jurisdiction extended over the immense mass of public servants at the capital, with few exceptions, and his voice in selecting officials for service there was potent. In short, no officer had more constant and more confidential relations with the monarch than the magister officiorum. He was the most important executive officer at the center of government. The greatest judicial and legal officer was the quaestor palatii. The early history of this officer is obscure, and no acceptable explanation has been found for the use of the title quaestor in connection with it. The dignity of the quaestor's functions may be understood from the descriptions given in the literature. Symmachus calls him the dispenser of petitions and the constructor of laws, arbiter precum legum conditor. The poet Claudian says that he quote, issued edicts to the world and answers to suppliants. End quote, while Corpus describes him as quote, the champion of justice, who under the emperor's auspices controls legislation and legal principles. Eura. The quaestor's office, like many others, advanced in importance after its creation, which appears to have taken place not earlier than Constantine's reign. In the latter part of the fourth century he took precedence even of the magister officiorum, and with one brief interruption he maintained this rank. The requirements for the office were above all skill in the law and in the art of legal expression on all legal questions, whether questions of change in law or questions of its administration, the emperor gave his final decision by the voice of the quaestor. No body of servants parentheses, (officium) parentheses, was specially allotted to him, but the Scrinia were at his service. Indeed, he may be said to have been the intermediary between the Scrinia and the emperor. His relations with the heads of the departments alibellus and a and particularly with the latter, must have been very close, but their work was preparatory and subordinate to his so far as legal matters were concerned. The instances in which the magister memoriae succeeded in acting independently of the quaestor were exceptional. A share in the appointment to certain of the lesser military offices was also assigned to the quaestor, who kept a record of the names of their holders which was known as Laterculum minus in this duty he was assisted by a high official of the scrinia memoriae whose title was Laterculensis. there was another body called tribuni et notari not attached to the scrinia which was of considerable importance the service of these functionaries was closely connected with the deliberations of the great imperial council the consistorium, which is to be described presently. They had to see that the proper officers carried out the decisions of the council. Their business often brought them into close and confidential relation with the emperor himself. The officer at the head is Primacarius, literally one whose name is written first on a wax tablet, Prima Cara. The title is given to many officers serving in other departments and indicates usually, but not always, high rank. This particular primicarius ranked even higher than the chiefs of the Scrinia and the Castrensis Sacri polity. According to the Notitia, he has, quote, cognizance of all dignities and administrative offices, both military and civil, end quote. He kept the great list known as latriculum maius, in which were comprised not only the actual tenants of the greater offices, but forms for their appointment, schedules of their duties, and even a catalogue of the different sections of the army and their stations, including the scolae, which served as imperial guards. The reorganization of finance brought into existence a host of officials who either bore new names or old titles to which new duties had been assigned. The great and complex system of taxation initiated by Diocletian and carried further by his successors can here be only sketched in broad outline. Although, like all the institutions of the new monarchy, the scheme of taxation had its roots in the past, the new development in its completed form stands in such marked contrast to old conditions that there is not much to be gained by detailed references to the earlier empire." Before Diocletian's time, the old aerarium Saturni had ceased to be of imperial importance, and the Arraria Militare of Augustus had disappeared. The general census of Roman citizens, carried out at Rome, is not heard of after Vespasian's time. Of the ancient revenues of the state, very many were swept away by Diocletian's reform, even the most productive of all, the 5% tax on inherited property, parentheses, Vicesisma hereditatum, by which Augustus had subjected Roman citizens in general to taxation. The separate provisional census, of which in Gaul, for example, we hear much during the early empire, was rendered unnecessary. The great and powerful Societatis Publicanorum had dwindled away, though the Publicani were still employed for some purposes. Direct collection of revenue had gradually taken the place of the system of farming. Where any traces of the old system remained, it was subject to strict official supervision. Before Diocletian, the incidence of taxation on the different parts of the empire had been most unequal, The reasons for this lay partly in the extraordinary variety of the conditions by which in times past the relation of different portions of the empire to the central government had been fixed when they first came under its sway, partly in republican or imperial favor or disfavor as they afterwards affected the burdens to be endured in different places, partly by the evolutions of the municipalities of different types throughout the Roman dominions. Towns and districts, which once had been immune from imposts or slightly taxed, had become tributary, and vice versa. The reforms instituted by Augustus and carried further by his successors did something towards securing uniformity, but many diversities continued to exist. Some of these were produced by the gift of immunitas, which was bestowed on many civic communities scattered over the empire. Without this gift... Even communities of Roman citizens were not exempt from the taxation which marked off the provinces from Italy. In order to understand the purpose of Diocletian's changes in the taxation of the empire, it is necessary to consider the struggle which he and Constantine made to reform the imperial coinage. The difficult task of explaining with exactness the utter demoralization of the currency at the moment when Diocletian ascended the throne cannot be here attempted. Only a few outstanding features can be delineated. The political importance of sound currency has never been more conspicuously shown than in the century which followed the death of Commodus, AD 180. Augustus had given a stability to the Roman coinage which it had never before possessed but he imposed no uniform system on the whole of his dominions gold with one slight exception he allowed none to mint but himself but copper he left in the hands of the senate silver he coined himself while he permitted many local mints to strike pieces in that metal also as well as in copper subsequent history extinguished local diversities and brought about by gradual steps a general system Which was not attained till the fourth century. Aurelian deprived the senate of the power which Augustus had left it. Although the imperial coins underwent a certain amount of depreciation between the time of Augustus and that of the severi, it was not such as to throw out of gear the taxation and the commerce of the empire. But with Caracalla, a rapid decline set in, and by the time of Aurelian, the disorganization had gone so far that practically gold and silver were demonetized, and copper became the standard medium of exchange. The principal coin that professed to be silver had come to contain no more than 5% of that metal, and this proportion sank afterwards to 2%. What a government gains by making its payments in corrupted coin is always far more than lost in the revenue which it receives. The debasement of the coinage means a lightening of taxation, and it is never possible to enhance the nominal amount receivable by the exchequer so as to keep pace with the depreciation. The effect of this in the Roman Empire was greater than it would have been at an earlier time, since there is reason to believe that much of the revenue formerly payable in kind had been transmuted into money a measure of Aurelian had the effect of multiplying by eight such taxes as were to be paid in coin as the chief professing silver coin had twenty years earlier contained eight times as much silver as it had then come to contain he claimed that he was only exacting what was justly due but his subjects naturally cried out against his tyranny no greater proof of the disorganization of the whole financial system could be given than lies in the fact that the treasury included sackloads (parentheses folles) (parentheses) of the Antoniani, first coined by Caracalla, which were intended to be silver but were now all but base metal only. These folles passed from hand to hand unopened. Diocletian's attempts to remove these mischiefs were not altogether fortunate. He made experiment after experiment, aiming at that stability of the currency which had, on the whole, prevailed for two centuries after the reforms of Augustus, but never reaching it. Finally, discovering that the last change he had made led to general raising of prices, he issued the celebrated edict of AD 301, by which the charges for all commodities were fixed, the penalty for transgression being death. Constantine was forced to handle afresh the tangled problem of the currency. The task was rendered especially difficult by the fresh debasement of coinage which was perpetrated by Maxentius while he was supreme in Italy. It may be said at once that the goal of Diocletian's efforts was never reached by Constantine. He did indeed alter the weight of the gold piece, which now received the name of Solidus, and it continued in circulation practically unchanged. For centuries. But this gold piece was to all intents and purposes not a coin, for when payments were made in it, they were reckoned by weight. The solidus was in effect only a bit of bullion, the fineness of which was conveniently guaranteed by the imperial stamp. The same is true of Constantine's silver pieces. The only coins which could be paid and received by their number, without weighing, were those contained in the folies of which mention was made above, and the word follis was now applied to the individual coins as well as to the whole sack. It had proved to be impossible to restore the monetary system which had prevailed in the first and second centuries of the empire. But the tide of innovation was at length stayed, and this in itself was no small boon. End of section 5